Heads up Chicago, Illinois, Tony Schiavone, Eric Bischoff, and myself are bringing the first ever joint show for what happened when and 83 weeks to McCormick place right here in Chicago. You don't want to miss it. It's the South building. We're so excited to be a part of C2 E2 after dark and tickets are on sale right now at 83WHW.com. That's 83WHW.com. And for just 39 bucks, you're going to see Tony Schiavone and Eric Bischoff on stage together for the first time since the nitro days. Plus you'll have a chance to ask some questions. And of course, if you're VIP, you can get pictures, autographs. We've got tons of fun swag for you. You don't want to miss it. It is the show. Everyone's going to be talking about Eric Bischoff, Tony Schiavone, and it happens tonight in Chicago. Tickets are on sale at 83WHW.com. That's 83WHW.com. It's C2E2 after dark at the South building of McCormick place. Come see us. You'll be glad you did. 83WHW.com. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. What a rib. No, you have a big There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. It, it, it. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I ain't scared. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. Fuck you, Bruce. I love you. Double cheeseburger. Double cheese. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Uh, jolly good. Jolly good, by God. Well, I know you're gearing up. You're excited. You've got a tour coming up this weekend in Australia, and uh, we're going to tell everybody all about that. And then we're going to get to why we're really here, WrestleMania 10. I'm fired up about this. It's one of those big shows that uh, everybody's been looking forward to, and we're finally ready to cover it. But first, let's talk about last weekend. We debuted the WrestleMania 20 episode where you were recording on the road live from Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, and uh, I'm curious to get your take on the feedback that we got. Well, I think that people kind of thought that, uh, I don't know, uh, there's quite a bit of negative com comments out there if you will uh there was some positive as well but you know what uh apologize because I, i'm going to take the brunt of it i was pretty damn tired exhausted we wanted to get a show out so we we got a show out and it wasn't our best show i'm the first one to admit it and i apologize for that and i, I don't know what else to say and hopefully we won't let it happen again but uh kind of burning both ends of the stick or the candle if you will and doing the best we can it's worth mentioning too that uh, i think some of the folks that we that gave us some negative feedback last week were upset that the show wasn't longer well, uh, but but my, my my take on that is always you know, what did we miss? You know, I felt like we covered most of that show or the build up to it with our no way out episode, our Royal rumble episode. And of course we've done long shows on Kurt angle and we did the build up until that win with John Cena. And so we've done a lot of that stuff already in the archives and it felt like we would be doubling back to just cover it again. So if you were looking for a companion piece for WrestleMania 20, there are tons of them. Uh, at, in the archives over at something to wrestle.com, but the actual show itself, when we covered 
uh, WrestleMania, I thought was pretty good. We spent a lot more time really breaking down the card than we normally do. And, uh, I enjoyed the show and, and I hope that everybody enjoys our WrestleMania 10 episode. And we sound back to normal this week because you're not in a hotel room in Stanford, Connecticut. You're <laughs> back in your home studio. Yeehaw. That's a beautiful thing being here in Texas, by God, not having a phone up to my ear the whole time. So yes. And hopefully we're sounding a whole hell of a lot better. I'm well, awake too. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think everybody knows about those 2 AM conference calls. Uh, and, and you know, ta- you and I taping at five in the morning or a lunch break. It's uh, <laughs> this new schedule of yours. It's going to be the death of you, but we're going to have a good time until you kick the bucket, but hopefully you don't kick the bucket before your tour of Australia which is coming up and I know you're excited about it. Tell everybody what to expect and where to see you. Well, if you're listening in Australia, by God, I think that I've, I've already been in Sydney. So it's Sydney Friday night. It's Melbourne Saturday night, and it is Brisbane on Sunday afternoon. Great tickets are still available. Beautiful venues. Just head on over to brucepritchard.com. I, you know, Conrad, I, I've been all over the world. I've never been to Australia, and this is one of those that is on my bucket list that I've always wanted to do and a place I've always wanted to visit. So looking to have a blast well i know you're gonna have fun and i'm gonna be having fun this weekend because tonight friday night uh, eric bischoff and tony Schiavone will join me right there in chicago at c2e2 after dark it's a special ticketed event tickets are only 39 bucks and we're gonna have our first ever joint show for what happened Wait, when Conrad, three weeks. isn't this the first time they've been together in like 100 years something like that yeah those are some old dudes and this is the first time they've been on stage together and performed together like this since nitro went down so a long time and we're putting the band back together man tickets are on sale now 83whw.com is where you pick them up that's the number eight the number three and whw 83whw.com so you can get your tickets for tonight in chicago illinois uh, for just 39 bucks and and hey you know what i do want to remind everybody that although mine and your show is sold out at gramercy theater the day before wrestlemania the day after WrestleMania, right after the biggest Monday night raw of the year, you're going to be on stage possibly for the last time with good old JR tickets are on sale now at brucepritchard.com. So if you're planning to go to Monday night, raw, the biggest Monday night raw of the year, why wouldn't you just a few steps from Barclays center, come see Bruce Pritchard and Jim Ross one last time on stage together, pick up your tickets right now at brucepritchard.com. Let's get into it, man. WrestleMania 10 while we're really here. This is an interesting show. I watched this one start to finish for the first time in a long time this week. And, uh, I'm pretty excited to, uh, to cover it with you. First, I want to tell you that the attendance here is 19,000 folks. Once again, it's at Madison square garden, just like it was last week when we covered WrestleMania 20 here, we've got a gate of $960,000 and the buy rate is actually down from WrestleMania nine, which we've covered. One of the arguably worst WrestleManias ever available in the archives at something to wrestle.com. The buy rate for this one is a 1.68, but the buy rate for WrestleMania nine was a two. So while it would still appear to be down the biggest show of the year for WCW on the other channel is Starcade, And that was headlined in Charlotte, North Carolina with Ric Flair and Vader for the world title. That only did a 0.55 buy rate. So while we're going to talk about business being down a little bit here, it's still a multiple of what WCW is doing. Fair to say. 
Yeah, and business, I think, was down for everybody across the board. Um, I remember during this time, even looking at the the trades and the media week, talking about Ringling Brothers, Barnum & Bailey Circus, uh, Disney on Ice, and rock concerts across the board and how everything, for whatever reason, was down. And we were, we were not immune to it. We definitely, business was not great. And the arena business in general, it, it was a tough year. It, it was a tough year to where rock bands were wondering, shit, do we even tour anymore? So it, it was across the board without a doubt. Something I've always wanted to talk about a little more is something we touched on in one of our early episodes, the steroid trial. And I'll admit when we were first sort of getting our feet wet with this show, I wasn't doing near the amount of research that I'm doing now. And I'd love to have a do over for the steroid trial. Maybe we'll do it again sometime for Patreon, but I guess it's fair to say that the steroid trial here on the lead up to WrestleMania 10 is still taking up a lot of Vince McMahon's time and mental space. Is that fair to say? Yeah, he's fighting for his life. You know, you have the federal government trying to take you down and you're, he was fighting for his freedom and he was fighting for the company that he had built. So it was a stressful time to say the least. The reason I bring this up here is around WrestleMania Meltzer publishes a report that is, he says, potentially the biggest story in wrestling in many years and one largely misunderstood by virtually everyone, both within the wrestling profession and those outside of reporting it. And he's of course talking about the steroid trial, but he says that there was a Supreme court decision back in December that changed the way the government could handle some of their business. The biggest change of which is the ruling makes it more difficult, but not impossible or even implausible for the government to seize assets in drug cases. The government no longer has power upon a conviction of either of the two charges against the company for distribution and conspiracy in regards to distribute, to seize the building, which is believed to be the biggest potential economic ramification that could come out of the trial. That's directly from the observer. But what they're talking about is, you know, when this thing first happened, the government was gunning for all of the company's assets, including Titan towers. Now with this change in the law. Uh, now, of course, McMahon's still in trouble and he still could face, you know, up to a million and a half dollars in fines, but perhaps not nearly as menacing of a punishment that was possibly looming in the distance before. Is that ever even discussed that, Hey, if this does get bad, at least it's not as bad as it originally looked, or is that type of talk not even around the office at all? You know, I think that the fact that we were still doing business in some respects was grand because the government was trying to do anything and everything that they could do to disrupt the business. They were attacking people, employees within the company. They were going out and trying to find anybody that they could to just say something bad. If you had something bad to say about Titan sports or Vince McMahon, boy, they wanted to talk to you and they wanted to try and spin whatever that was into their case to portray this big, bad company as the evil empire. And throughout this whole thing, I think that there were folks on both sides of the fence that thought, okay, we're going to fight. We're going to get through this. And those that thought, oh my God, it's, you know, the end of the world. It's chicken little, the sky's falling, but the government did everything they could. I mean, they, they, 
God, they went after us and, and they went after us personally in, in a lot of respects. And it was a fight that I don't know, you know, that many people would, would have come out the way that we did. Well, besides the, the money and the fines, Vince is still facing, you know, five years on the conspiracy charge and three years on personal distribution. I mean, this has to be affecting him and it has to be um, different than prior WrestleManias. At this point, you've been around for the build for several WrestleManias. Was putting this one together, how was it different? Because Vince obviously has all of this hanging around in the background. Did you notice a change or a difference? Being as close to it as I was, I don't know that there really was that much of a difference from the from the previous year and in years past. Yes, it's there's kind of a dark cloud hanging over and, and looming wherever you went. It was almost like Linus or, or Schroeder on whoever the fuck it was and Charlie Brown. And but the, Vince was adamant that it wasn't going to affect business. We we had to continue on and we had to do business and what was best for business at the time. And while we had that edict, there were still certain things that, that you couldn't do. And there were still certain restraints on budget and what have you. So you're careful and you're, you're thinking and, for a lot of people on the outside of the company, there were some that didn't want to be associated with the WWF. They thought, okay, well, you know, God, we don't want to touch them. You know, we were, we, we were this ostracized child over here that no one wanted to touch. And that was fighting an uphill battle, but you, you just persevered. You put your head down and you kept going forward. So myself, I think Pat Vince, it, it was, Maybe it bothered us. Maybe it did affect us, but we never sold it. And we just kept going as if, you know, it's business as usual. Something I've, uh, wanted to ask, I guess is did Vince, you know, I mean, he has to be a little bit in CYA mode because on some level, not just from a, a personal finance standpoint, which is obviously important and something everyone would be thinking about what these major, if these major fines would have come down, if they would have seized the building. Vince has to be thinking, what do I need to do to keep the business afloat? How do I keep the train on the tracks? And it does feel like the booking and things like that, as a result of, you know, that sort of thinking would change. I'll tell you what changed was we didn't, we didn't have the availability to bring in outside talent. We didn't have the availability to sign new talent because Vince didn't feel confident in saying, Hey, you know, here's our future. And that stopped for a while as far as trying to bring in new talent and, and recruiting guys. So other than that, he, he was just, he was fighting for his life. So he was fighting for his life on one, uh, front with the government and on the other side, on the business side, staying and trying to conduct business as usual. And as hard as it was, you know, you still had to just come in and do your job and do the best that you could do to continue. And you couldn't let is uh, the outsider, man, those who lived it. Yes. We had a lot of shit on us, but you just had to forget about it. You had to move on because when you know the truth about things and, and you read the newspaper and it's full of untruths and just lies, 
that they were telling about the company and about Vince and about people that you know and have done business with. And it was just horseshit so many ways that you just go fuck them and, and you move on because what you were reading out there wasn't real in our world. So you just keep forging forward and move ahead. You said something a minute ago. I want to circle back to you talked about you and Pat and how you guys weren't going to sell it. Was there a sentiment or a conversation, you know, whether it was explicit or implied, uh, Hey, don't let any of the boys see you sell. You got to keep a brave face for the boys. It's almost like if your, your kid gets sick, your wife gets sick, you feel like it's your, your job as the, the man of the household to be the strong one and keep the brave face and, and not sell it. And you sort of insinuated there, you know, me and Pat and all we, we had to not sell it. Are you implying for no. the guys who are, are, are the employees of the company who are maybe below you on the, the, um, uh, you know, the chart, the organizational chart. No, we had no mandate. You just did what you had to do. That was the right thing to do. We never let, never let them see you sweat, but at the same time, we just had to move forward and, and it wasn't, no, it was never a mandate. We just did it. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, where the business is at the time Meltzer would write in comparing WWF business from 92 to 93, besides the obvious 16.7% decline in house show attendance for the year. And almost surely a greater decline in overall house show revenue during the same period, because running far less house shows over the year, essentially they went from 550 ish in 92 down to 493 is that the decline in interest in the WWF product has to this point been quelled for the most part. Interest was way down during the early part of the year as compared with the year before in April of 92 with the beginning of the fallout of the scandals, the loss of Hulk Hogan, more serious steroid testing, all of which resulted in many of the top guys, either shrinking noticeably or leaving over the summer, which resulted in huge decline in WWF business. This trend largely continued through the early part of 93 and into the summer. When you watch this show back, are you thinking about how different the business was in 92, 93 to here to 94, or are you able to just watch it sort of in a vacuum? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily in a vacuum, but it was, it definitely was a time where things were changing. You're going to the, to the quote new generation and you're going from having Hulk Hogan carry the banner to now Bret Hart carry the banner and, and moving on because at this point we were looking at, well, you know, Hulk's gone and weren't looking to, to have him back anytime soon. So you're just, it, it's new. So it's different by definition, it's going to be different. And we were changing a lot. We were changing a lot in the way that we were presenting the events before, you know, you're looking at big attractions with just names, you know, Hulk Hogan versus Kamala. They didn't have to have an issue. You wanted to see it. Now we're moving towards Bret Hart versus Owen Hart with a strong personal issue underneath to carry that story. So the way we told our stories was changing. You got Monday night raw in there, a live television show that is also changing the way that we did business. So just the business itself and the storytelling was changing and it was different. We were, we were adapting to, to new. 
you know, one of the things that you guys changed is you, you stopped running as many shows and, and concentrated on running bigger buildings instead of you, instead of going, you know, with more quantity, you tried to go more quality, less is more. So you start running more packed shows and this is certainly a packed show. You can tell you guys are trying to squeeze as much talent here as you can. And Meltzer would say early signs don't point to a significant change in arena attendance during 94, but it appears ratings in 94 will be above the levels of both 92 and 93. So the slowing rate of decline and showing signs of reversing the trend is more likely limited to the company rather than an industry-wide barometer improvement looking at WCW. Of course, the idea being, you know, we opened this show comparing it to WCW and you said, well, business was down everywhere. But it does feel like you guys pull the nose up faster, which really is impressive considering that you did this when your leader is facing all of this serious legal trouble. Meanwhile, that's not really the case on the other station. Yeah, but again, it, it's, yeah, we did pull it up a little bit. Um, and I think in some ways it's a little deceiving because we did a lot more international, which helped pull the nose up. And that was, that was a strategy because the States, they weren't drawing the way that they used to. So we were trying to change that business plan as well and, and move some things in a different direction and trying a lot of new, trying some non-traditional ways of doing business. Like let's, let's go over overseas where we normally wouldn't go for a long period of time. Let's spend a little while longer over there and go ahead and get that money because it's new and it's, they're still engaged and give the States a rest. It is fun to me because you and I have talked about specifically when we go back and we look at our TNA episodes way back in the day, TNA was doing tremendous business overseas where maybe they were struggling a little bit here. Why do you think there's always been an appetite for American professional wrestling in the UK? God, it's, you know, I think anywhere that you go outside of the United States, there's a, there's a want for the Western entertainment because the product is a global product, man. It, it translates in any language, no matter what language people understand physical competition. So to that UK, man, they're English speaking, but you go beyond that you go to Germany, you go to France, you go to Italy they still understand competition. They still understand two guys settling a dispute in the ring. So to that, I just think that they, it was different than what they had. It was new and an opportunity to see it live, uh, presented to them. God, that was, that was a huge deal because it was not, it was not their norm. And for us to come over was like Elvis coming over in a lot of respects or the, when the Beatles came to the States in reverse. Let's get back to the observer in early February. It was written. The rumor mill has been flying all week concerning the possibility of Hulk Hogan coming to world championship wrestling for a pay-per-view matchup with Ric Flair later this year. The story, which has been spread within WCW and is well known at this point throughout wrestling is that a Flair Hogan pay-per-view match will take place probably over the summer. In addition, the Napke convention held this past week in Miami beach, Hogan talked openly about returning to wrestling in may after filming 22 episodes of thunder in paradise and brought up Flair's name as the opponent. He wants to wrestle 
At this point, there's said to be no contractual deal between Hogan and WCW and other WCW sources are exceedingly skeptical that such a deal will ever take place. How plugged in are you guys with, I guess, let me just back that up to the best of your understanding. What was the relationship like between Vince and Hulk Hogan here in February of 94? I don't think there was much of a relationship at that point. I think that, um, 93 at the end of 93 that Vince had resigned himself, that Hulk wanted to go off and do his thunder in paradise. The fact that Hulk was using talent from WCW that was doing tapings, I believe in Disney at the time in Orlando, that that was kind of a statement by Hulk saying, Hey, you know, he he didn't reach out to anybody on the WWF side to say, Hey, I'd like to use some of your guys, give them exposure on this show. So the writing was kind of on the wall and that relationship between Vince and Hulk was strained. They weren't talking. And when I say they weren't talking, they might, they might talk once every couple of weeks, but it it just, um, that's always been a love hate relationship. And when it's good, it's very good. And when it's bad, it was bad. This was a time that Hulk could distance himself. And I think Hulk saw the opportunity with thunder and paradise to go off and become a a David Hasselhoff in the syndication world. So he saw bigger and better things. And if he was going to do wrestling, maybe he would do it, uh, for a different, uh, billionaire, even though Vince wasn't a billionaire at the time. When you guys started to hear that maybe Hogan is talking to WCW and you and I've talked about this on the show before. Sometimes Hogan would just flirt with the media and court this attention and tease it just to get the other side to make an offer. When you hear this news that, Hey, maybe Hulk's going to sign with WCW. Do you think at this time, well, he's not really, because if he was gonna, he already would have, he's just using this to see if Vince will call. Definitely. There's that thought there because you're waiting for that call. You're waiting for, Hey, I'm thinking about going over here unless you can talk me into staying here. So that always happened. And there was also, you know, you'd also run through that, you know, the breakup period where you're really sad at first. And then you get to the point, well, that bitch, she, she two timed me or she's going out with that other guy. Fuck her. Um, I think that it was, it ran the gambit with Hulk of, well, he's going on to do other things to, well, that son of a bitch, he's now flirting with WCW and he's using their talent. He's not even calling us for our talent. So I think there were hurt feelings and probably on both sides that, that made it okay. You know, we'll show him or him on us. I'll show them. It, it, It went both ways. Melser reports in the observer that the way you guys decide how to sort of structure the WrestleMania card comes down to a coin flip on raw, which is to decide, will it be Lex Luger or Bret Hart who would get the first shot at Yokozuna? Of course, Luger wins and it's announced that both title matches would have special referees and references are made to celebrities that are going to be appearing and, uh, Meltzer would write, there's been talk of bringing back big names from the past for this show. In hindsight, the idea of the tie-in of the rumble leading to the two title matches on the same show is a good one. The show's biggest draw is not any matches, but the name WrestleMania as evidenced by the show selling out in just a few days before any matches had even been announced. 
Is this the first time you remember WrestleMania as a brand having that cachet to be able to sell out before you even announce anything? Because that really is pretty unique to wrestling, especially in this era. Well, for me, I think WrestleMania nine was like that as well, because it, you know, the, the attraction was what it was and the allure of being in Caesar's palace and WrestleMania that that sold that as well, because I don't know that the matches were something that really sold it. So the brand WrestleMania was really starting to, to take hold where people just wanted to see the big event. They wanted to be a part of the biggest event of the year. And I, I, for me, it, it happened at, at WrestleMania nine, when we really focused on WrestleMania, the spectacle versus WrestleMania, the main event match. Yeah, it's, uh, it's grown to the point where, you know, it's, it's as big as any other event besides like the super bowl or the world series. I mean, people just know what it is, even if they're not necessarily a fan of wrestling. I mean, they know exactly what it is. Uh, well, talk to me about the, the coin flip segment on raw and then having the rumble fallout spill over into the next month. Oh boy, that coin flip could have gone either way, Conrad. It was, <laughs> <laughs> we are sweating our ass off going, okay, if the, if it's heads, this will happen. And, and you know, you just got to go with it sometimes and, and hope for the best. You know, you, you go back and you look at that rumble with Brett and Lex coming over. That was superb in the execution, 100% on Brett Hart. Because Brett had a hold of Luger and had a hold of his foot, and Brett was going to make sure that they came down at exactly the same time. So hats off to Brett Hart because he he made it work, and we had it covered nine ways from Sunday. To no matter how it came out, we could have made it work, but um, they made it work to perfection. And the idea behind it was. I think that the sentiment from the audience was there was a sentiment that really wanted Brett that felt that Brett was the guy that they wanted to be their champion. And we had done all this work up until this time to try and get Lex in position and the audience didn't want Lex, but I think Vince wanted to carry through with that to WrestleMania with Lex and, and Yokozuna. So I don't want to say he made a promise because he, he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't do that, but it, I think that he felt obligated to, well, let's see how it goes. And, uh, we, we can give them that match and give them the other match. We talked about triple threat, but what happened in the meantime as well was Owen Hart getting over as, as big as Owen got over. And that personal issue with Brett was getting to be bigger than anything. So we came up with the, the three match scenario or the four match, however the hell it was a uh, scenario to get to where we needed to be. Talk to me about, uh, thunder and paradise debuting the week before WrestleMania. I mean, that can't be an accident. Can it? At least in your I, opinion, God, I have no idea. I mean, it was a syndicated program. So I'm sure that the, the folks that, were producing it and getting it out there, they would want to get it out there with Hulk Hogan around the biggest 
publicity time of the year when everybody's talking about WrestleMania and Hulk being synonymous with WrestleMania. I have no idea what the hell they did on their end, but they'd be silly not to, not to capitalize on all that hoopla. All right, let's take a time out right now to remind everybody that the biggest wrestling weekend of the year is finally upon us. It's New York City, April 3rd through April 7th. And if you can't get there, man, Fight TV has you hooked up. They're going to be streaming 20 live wrestling events, including the Ring of Honor and New Japan G1 Supercard from a sold out Madison Square Garden, Impact Wrestling's United We Stand, WrestlePro, the WrestleCon Super Show, the WWN Super Show, House of Glory, and more. For a limited time only, the Fight Fest package that has over a $280 value is available for only $119.99. That's right, $119.99, and boom, you're in 20 shows, man. Take advantage of this super deal right now. Go to fight.tv or do what I do. Download the Fight app in your app store and take advantage of this unbelievable offer. One more time, it's the Fight Fest package. You get 20 live events for one low price. It's valued at over 280 bucks. You can get it for less than 120 bucks. Make it happen right now at fight.tv or download the fight app in the app store. And don't forget fight is F I T E that's F I T E dot TV or download the fight app. You're going to love it. Let's talk about the uh, television taping from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. You got any good memories from Bethlehem? God, I try not to Bethlehem is, is where John Layfield was hired and Bethlehem, Pennsylvania is where they had a snowstorm that was so bad. They declared a state of emergency and Vince McMahon and Jim Ross and I drove back to Connecticut following behind the sea of snow plows. Um, and I'm still alive to, to tell about it. That's where Jim Ross swore that he would never, never ride with Vince again didn't last long, but still it was a interesting trip. Well, Jim Cornette comes out of these tapings, holding the WWF title during his interview. And he's insulting Luger, uh, who comes out chasing Cornette off, who then drops the title. Luger takes the belt, goes into the dressing room. And then Vince asked the crowd, wouldn't it be great to see Luger with the belt and announced as the new WWF champion. At this point, Luger's brought back out and is wearing the belt and is announced as the new WWF heavyweight champion and does an interview segment, presumably taped for the WrestleMania for superstars. Now, of course, everybody's jumping to conclusions here. We've talked about this and alluded to it before. And you've said, no, that wasn't the plan. That's rumor and innuendo. What's the strategy here and having Vince tease. What if he was champion and then him come out introduced as champion wearing the belt? To watch people out in California go run to their computer or their typewriter and type up. Yep, it's definitely this happened in Bethlehem so they can get a shot of Luger with the WWF championship and he's going to win at WrestleMania. Get people talking. Nah, seriously. Seriously. You did that shit just to fuck with Meltzer? And he fucking bit. Come on, man. Really? Why not? That's so stupid. I know it's stupid that he has no idea what he's talking about and he falls for shit. <sighs> okay. Let's keep it going here. I guess we should mention, you know, Hey, Hey Conrad. I, and I know we, we, we probably touch on this in the Cornette thing, but all throughout this, this build to me, it was some of the, the best shit because 
Cornette had come in and Corny was doing his stuff with Smoky Mountain Wrestling <laughs> and Cornette coming up to have his Smoky Mountain get some national exposure and Vince basically talking him into managing Yokozuna and being the mouthpiece for Yokozuna. And he was great. Absolutely great. But the, the thought of Cornette telling me beforehand, I'm not going to go on the fucking road. I'm not going to do this full time. I'm not going to do this to Vince getting him to be the mouthpiece for Yoko. I always just kind of chuckle whenever I see Jim Cornette and Yokozuna together because it was a great pairing, but corny just the way Vince talked him into it, masterful. Let's, uh, let's touch briefly on something we've just spent a lot of time talking about, but I just want to mention it again because it's happening in this, this same timeline. Lawler is not on this show. He is supposed to be probably, but he's got all these legal troubles and, uh, ultimately there's going to be uh, a settlement February 23rd where the deal is reached between two sides of the pretrial hearing where Lawler agrees to plead guilty to harassing a witness. And in return, the prosecutor agrees to drop all four counts of all the other stuff. What was Lawler going to do at WrestleMania 10 had none of that stuff happened? God, I, you know, I don't even think that was a thought of at that point because Jerry had been a commentator and that had happened you know, going back, whatever it was, October, November of the previous year that we, we had no thoughts of Lawler at WrestleMania at this point. He, he wasn't considered because he was out of the picture. And until all of that was completely done with, there were no early thoughts. And at this point in February, okay, maybe we bring him back as a commentator and, but time will tell Well, there were, there were no thoughts, uh, before that in, September, October of what we would do with Lawler at WrestleMania. If anything, probably just thinking he'd be a commentator. This is a silly thing. We've not spent a lot of time talking about Meltzer would write on the 21st of March. And what became a major story in the U S media on the 14th is something that was first reported in Japanese newspapers on March 8th, the all Japan women's pro wrestling promotion is claiming they're going to make a $2 million offer to Tanya Harding to become a pro wrestler. The story garnered some publicity last week in Japan and a second story hit the next day when Akira Hokutu returned from Mexico and announced she wanted to train Harding on Monday morning. The story hit the U S in an AP story with a Tokyo headline, which quickly made it as everything related to Harding over the past few months has become one of the lead stories in the news. This seems like this is right out of Vince McMahon's playbook. Do you remember reading this? And did you guys ever even consider doing anything with Tanya Harding? Yeah, we considered, we did consider doing something with Tanya Harding and bringing her in and, uh, having her get her ass kicked. She wasn't interested. I think that maybe because we were interested at one time, we had floated that idea out there that maybe her manager had heard or someone in her camp was like, Hey, you could get a lot of money in Japan and floated it out that way. Thinking that maybe they could get a big payday. It was all publicity. It was all for publicity's sake because Tanya at that time, at least when we dealt with her, she had no desire to do it later on. She would go and do the celebrity boxing matches and all that bullshit. But yeah, we approached her. Definitely. Meltzer would make a comment in the observer that quote, there's no organization in this business that can hype a show like Titan sports. 
but it appears that this event has garnered far less interest than any previous WrestleMania, despite the 10 year anniversary gimmick and increase in television viewership in recent months, giving it some initial momentum. The momentum has waned and interest seems lower each week due to the week lineup of matches. And with one or two exceptions, a celebrity list of people that hardly qualify as celebrities. Did you feel like, and, and a lot of shows are guilty of this. People come out really hot for, you know, a ticket or a show or whatever, but then as time gets closer, it actually goes the other way. You can actually see this happen, you know, present day with big shows. You can track what tickets were, you know, the day they go on sale or they sell out or whatever. But then as you get closer to the show, instead of the ticket prices going up because anticipation is building it actually trends the other way. It starts to go down. Do you remember that being the feeling here with WrestleMania 10? Not really. Maybe for maybe for the television audience, maybe for the pay-per-view audience, but the the live event feel and the garden feel, that never waned at all. There was still anticipation of people wanting to be there live for the 10th anniversary of WrestleMania. So, I don't think that ever waned. I think overall, maybe for the the viewer and that pay-per-view buyer, eh, they might not have been as excited by the time that the event came around and bell time started. Of course, WrestleMania, just on name alone, is going to make it the highest grossing event of the year. Uh, ringside tickets are going to be 300 bucks for this show, which Meltzer would say is the highest price ticket in the history of United States wrestling. And he says that it's expected to set a gate record. Chat me up here. $300 for a WrestleMania ticket these days, no big deal. Back then, that was a lot of money. It's still a lot of money now, but back then crazy to ask that, but it worked when I mean, you got sold it out, chat me up about the pricing strategy and who was for moving it up. The promotions folks, uh, Basil DeBito and those folks in promotion were very confident that they could get it. And Vince was apprehensive about asking that for a live event ticket. I, I think that there had come a time where the the ticket prices we, we kind of reached a business was down and business was down across the country for house shows but it was wrestlemania it was new york city and if there was ever a time to experiment with your pricing structure it was this one it was you've only got 19,000 seats to sell so bring those ticket prices up to create a larger gate than you would get in a stadium or what have you and yeah, we went for it across the board. All the tickets were much more expensive than had previously been really acceptable for a WrestleMania. And I remember it was a promotions guy that came and, and said, Hey, for a, you know, NBA championship, here's what they're getting for that. Here's what the Super Bowl costs. Here's what the world series cost." And I said, well, why the fuck not? And we did it. And the, of course, as you and I know, the very first tickets to go were the highest price tickets. Yep. And those $300 seats were gone in a heartbeat. Let's talk about fan fest. You know, these days it's called access, but this is the first WrestleMania where you did anything like this. And, uh, it's, it's all over the network where you guys are promoting this. And this is the first time it happens. It runs, um, the week leading up to WrestleMania and you guys sell all seven sessions out 2,200 tickets each time. $22 a pop is the ask. 
And it seems like it's a pretty big success when you can sell out every single day. And the articles I've found make it seem like it's mostly autograph signings and meet and greets, but they've also got some things like, you know, call matches as an announcer and you see clips of it on the actual WrestleMania show where you can get like your picture made in a ring where you're pinning your friend and a real referee is making the count. What do you remember about how this was put together? Whose idea was it? What the, what the structure of it looked or felt like you guys were clearly trying new things here to up fan engagement and raise revenue. Clearly it worked. You're still doing it all this time later. Well, uh, tell you, I started Basil DeVito came from the NBA and we had just, uh, seen this NBA experience fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And it was in Cleveland, the fan experience of, of people being able to, to go up and they had all the basketball stars there and, and people signing autographs and pictures. And the, the draw was amazing and they've been doing it a few years. The NFL started maybe the year before that. I don't know when they started, but they had their, uh, fan access deal. It's New York. It's WrestleMania. And we thought, why not do this fan access? And that's what we called it because it was access to the superstars, access to a wrestling ring, access to the very interview set that Gene Okerlund did interviews on and all of this, you know, things that you never could experience as a fan on a day-to-day basis. So we packed it all into one, one deal. And I have to say that I was blown away with the number of vendors and the different activities that were available that, that pale in comparison to what, what it's become and what they do now. And it was, but you got to go back 1994. You didn't have all these fan conventions and all this access where guys were doing personal appearances all over the place. That didn't happen then. So this was the first time for a lot of people to be able to have access to the WWF talent and for them to go in, get their picture, meet them, get an autograph and touch a ring. Do you actually actually go up and, and touch the ring, get in, get your picture taken in the ring. Um, later on, you know, we had the entrance and it was, it was a big deal. So that that's how it all came about and it, it grew and then it reached a point where, eh, maybe not, it's not working. Uh, the folks that come in from overseas, they, they've seen it, they've done it and it's gone through many manifestations, but in the very beginning, it was access. It was access to the talent, access to the ring, access to things that you never, ever would have access to before. That's how it came up with it. Well, somebody who wasn't working this show is the undertaker. Uh, there's no undertaker here because he died at the Royal rumble and went to heaven when uh, he lost that casket match to Yokozuna and half the locker room beat the shit out of him. He didn't die. Okay. He was buried. He was placed in a casket and ascended. Okay. Yeah. What he said, and it's available in the archives. If you want to listen to the 1994 Royal rumble, he's doing a signing overseas at this time. So he's around, but just not at WrestleMania. Was there any discussion 
for him being on WrestleMania, it does feel weird. There's an undertakerless WrestleMania. We did, but it, well, we weren't ready to bring him back. And we were waiting post WrestleMania for stuff with Yokozuna and just timing. No, he was never, he was never penciled in for it. And it wasn't something that we were ready to do. We, he wanted the time off and we gave him the time off. Well, okay. There you go. Um, we'll move along here. Let's talk about WrestleMania, the actual show itself. It's an interesting open to this where we're visiting, uh, sort of old clips from WrestleMania. And then we, uh, fade into the more current music and the intro for WrestleMania 10. Uh, King is back here doing commentary, but he's not wrestling. Uh, it is weird. I think I just assumed he would be wrestling here since we were supposed to see him square off in that survivor series, but whatever. We're happy. He's back. Uh, Vince is joining him of course. And, uh, King is making up for lost time with a lot of one-liners to get the first hour of the show, uh, kicked off. And it feels like they never missed a beat. These guys just had natural chemistry together. Is that more of a statement of their chemistry or just how damn good and underrated Jerry Lawler is on commentary. God, I don't think Lawler's underrated. I, I think he's one of the best that, that has ever been as far as commentary goes. And you add that to the chemistry that he had with Vince. They had a natural chemistry and worked seamlessly together. So it was like riding a horse, you know, they jumped right back on and didn't miss a beat. They really did a great job here. Was there ever any, uh, discussion for what the commentary team might look like if Lawler couldn't make it, if things didn't go his way with that trial, what do you think it would have looked like here? Probably Jim Ross maybe, but you know, Jim was in and out, (laughs) you know, different times. So it was, it was different. And we talked about Kurt Hennig talked about Roddy Piper talked about a lot of different people as time went on and thank God, you know, Kings, everything had settled and it was a nice return for the King. It's good to be King. It is indeed. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the opening because we start with Vince McMahon throwing to America, the beautiful, and you sort of joke about this sometimes with how over the top he was at WrestleMania three. And I'll be damned if he doesn't do it again here for little Richard. There's something about Vince McMahon introducing someone and he's got the mic in one hand and he's going to motion from himself to that other person with the other hand. And he starts shaking the hand, almost like the hand is hulking up. Having seen you actually recreate that a couple dozen times, it's freaking hilarious. And I couldn't help, but think about that when he introduced little Richard, before you talk about the, the fun, silly entrance, a little Richard. Chat me up about why little Richard was the right guy, because it does feel, and I know little Richard's an icon, Lord bless him. But when he's being introduced as like the king of rock and roll in 1994, eh, tell me about little Richard coming in and then make fun of that entrance because I know you're dying to. He was the king of rock and roll. Um, little Richard was the shit. Um, I, you know, I got to work with, with Gladys Knight, Aretha, some really, truly greats in, in their own right through the years who have sang their rendition of America, the beautiful little Richard 
may have been the most insecure of all of the talent that I've ever worked with. And when I say he was insecure, he was one of the most talented insecure motherfuckers I've ever seen in my life. Richard gets in the middle of the ring and we're doing a sound test and we're going through everything. And Richard is playing the piano and singing. The guys are working, uh, setting up chairs. Every, the, the building goes silent just to listen to Richard sing some of the most beautiful shit I've ever experienced in my life. And to be right there, I was at ringside and he finished and Richard did not want to sing live. Was terrified, absolutely terrified. So he had laid down a track and he was going to lip sync it. So we had gone back and forth and, and Jim Johnston had worked with little Richard and, and talked to him and he had come up with the music and done the bed. He recorded the voice and the whole nine yards. And I thought, man, I've got to, I've got to take a shot. I just have to. And I got in the ring and I asked Richard, I said, that may have been the most beautiful rendition of America beautiful I've ever, I've ever heard. And he was like, well, thank you. I said, I don't think it holds up. I, I said, I don't think that your track version holds up. And he just looked at me and if, and if looks could kill, I didn't have a good night with celebrities on this night. Let me just start off there. Um, if looks could kill, I would have been dead. And he kind of laced into me about how I don't understand what it is to perform in front of people and his voice isn't what it used to be and how long it took to get that track to perfection that it was. And he wasn't going to risk his reputation in the middle of a wrestling ring in New York City. And I said, okay, then thank you very much. Turned and walked out of the ring and just kind of walked on my way. But he was, I love it when talent just gets on the microphone or they'll play guitar, they'll play piano or whatever, and just sing like, you know, like they're in the shower, if you will. And that's what Richard was doing. And he brought the garden to a standstill where everybody just stopped what they were doing and listened. One of the, the, the greatest uh, singers I've ever had the pleasure to work with. And he was absolutely terrified at that stage of his career that he would look foolish and fuck up America the Beautiful. Meltzer says that uh, he left right after he sang. Didn't sign any autographs for any of the boys. Just in and out. And him sort of blowing off the boys got a little bit of heat in the locker room. Do you remember that? And if so... Was it all your fucking fault? Probably always is. My Anything's my fault. Uh, if something's fucked up, it's my fault. But I don't, you know, I don't really recall that. I remember him being very gracious to everybody. Uh, he did leave and said, good, said goodbye, uh, thanked everybody. But we knew that before he got there. It wasn't like he, he dashed out, he did his thing and got the fuck out. We knew. We had a window for Richard, for his performance, and, and he was gone right afterwards. So it wasn't a surprise to anybody. But he was gracious to everybody. He stood in the back in the little alleyway there in the dressing room area that you always see where Hulk comes down, you know, and the old man's sitting there playing with his quarters. 
Um, Richard sat there, talked to guys, was very cordial, nice as could be. Didn't stick around, but he was nice as could be. Talk to me about all the celebrities here on the show. Besides little Richard, you got Burt Reynolds, who I think is fresh off of breaking his hand where he knocked out a mugger. So he's got his hand in a cast. Jenny Garth is here. Uh, the chick from up all night, Rhonda Shear, uh, Donnie Wahlberg from the new kids on the block. We've got a horrible Bill Clinton impersonator. It's got a bunch of segments, way too many. I mean, this is, uh, an interesting WrestleMania to say the least. Okay. Well, working backwards, the Clinton impersonator was top notch. He was fucking great. What a great guy. And I'm not arguing he's not a nice guy, but what the fuck is this doing on the show? This is terrible. (laughs) It was WrestleMania. It was the 10th anniversary. Um, oh God. It fucking sucked. You know it. Just say it sucked. Unless. I mean, no, it was great. He was awesome. Uh, um, okay. He's a nice he, guy. You know, we stayed up. Hang on. I, I, you want me to talk or are you just going to tell me he's horrible? Well, I'm just glad you're talking this way. God damn. Well, I'm, I'm trying to. Are you going to fucking Clinton. do it? What's that? You're going to fucking talk now, you fucker. I'm fucking trying to. You going to let me? Well, I'm asking. I'm just sitting over here with my dick in my hand. Well, God damn. But the, the Bill Clinton impersonator, the night before we had gone out and he looks completely different in real life, if you will, when his hair's all down and, and what have you ran into him in the bar and sat with him for several hours as he, he would go in and out of Bill Clinton. And one was one of the most charming guys that I've ever had the pleasure to be around. And we just sat there bullshitting with him all night. He was much funnier as himself than he was as Bill Clinton. But Vince was fascinated during this time of having the president there with the president of the WWF, Jack Tunney, in the presidential suite for WrestleMania 10, celebrating this big anniversary. And just he thought that was the funniest goddamn thing in the world. You going backwards, you know, from there, you had Donnie Wahlberg, who was music world, huge star. And the Donnie Wahlberg deal was interesting because Donnie and his brother, Mark wanted to shoot an angle. They were interested in, they'd come back and and said, Hey, we want to do this thing. Maybe Donnie does something at WrestleMania. Mark comes out and somehow they get into it, but ending with Donnie versus Mark with partners. They would each have a wrestler and they would have a tag team match with Donnie and Mark wrestling each other. And I'll never forget Vince's reaction to you mean the underwear kid. Cause at the time, Mark Wahlberg was a model for underwear. He wasn't, you know, the Mark Wahlberg that, that we know today. So that was the Donnie Wahlberg stuff. And Donnie was a, Big deal. New kids on the block. Um, Cy Sperling, who was the president of the Herrick Club for Men. He's not just, wasn't just the president, but he was also a client. Jesus. Okay. That one was the shits. Um, Jenny Garth, man, 90210 was a big hit. And she was not, she goes on the, the bad celebrity list. Cause she was a pain in the ass to deal with. Now, Jenny 
is the one who wouldn't sign anybody's autographs. And she stayed in her locker room and, and she didn't come out. She didn't uh, socialize with anybody and she was not a lot of fun. And she, you know, Bret Hart had stuff for his kids and just wanted to get autographs. And she was like, no, no autographs, no pictures, no nothing. And she was not a nice person. Uh, Rhonda Shear, piece of cake. She was willing to do, you know, whatever and was ready to go. Then there's Burt Reynolds. Burt was a great guy. Burt was there. He had broken his hand, um, as you said, fending off a mugger. And we had a list, which I had never really been presented with before, of like do's and don'ts with Burt. Burt had to have his own private dressing room, and Burt had to have uh, a certain size dressing room and you know certain drinks and what have you. Bert showed up and there was a Barry Wyndham had dated Bert's girlfriend at the time. And there was, I don't know if it was a fear, but there was a concern that there might be some interaction with Barry and Bert. Now this all came from his management and everything. But when we got with Bert, Bert was like the coolest guy on the face of the earth, man. He was just Mr. Cool. Hang on. Barry was with y'all then. Yeah. What was he doing? I think he was one of the blackjacks. No, that's the wrong timeline. Okay. Well, he was there. Okay. I believe you. Uh, and, and Bert was, Bert was totally cool. Uh, Barry came in and said hello to, to Pam and said hi to, uh, Bert. Everybody was cool. And then I'm dealing with Bert and I'm telling him what he's going to do. And as I'm telling him what he's going to do, his management pulls me off to the side again. And they say, whatever you do, keep Rhonda Shear away from Bert. Like they can't pass in the hallway. Uh, he doesn't want to see her. Um, nothing. Just keep her away. And I'm about to tell Bert that I've got him escorting Rhonda Shear to the ring. I'm like, okay. Excuse me. So I go back. I tell Vince that, hey, I need to make a change here. They don't want any interaction at all with Rhonda Shear. What the fuck's the problem? I don't know. I don't care. But can we just make the switch with Jenny Garth? So now as I'm going over everything with Bert, he looks at me and goes, so you want me to escort a 12-year-old girl to the ring? Nice. Next thing I know, Rhonda is in the dressing room. Bert's hugging her and they're talking about old times and sharing a drink and having a grand old time. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? As we get in to things and I'm, I'm talking to Bert about what he's going to do that night. I walk him out to the ring. I'll post the picture of Bert and I in the ring going over what he's going to do that night. Bert's job was to introduce the match, introducing Roddy as the guest referee for the match. And we're in the dressing room now, and I have cards made up for Bert. And I'm explaining to him, I said, the only thing I ask of you is when you're getting ready to introduce Roddy, I said, please just, and now introducing your guest referee, stop. And then once the music hits, give yourself about 10 seconds before you introduce Roddy Piper. His musical hit, he'll come out the entryway. We'll let the crowd react and then introduce Roddy. 
Bert flipped. I mean, fucking flipped. I've never been cussed out like that in my life in, in public in that way. And he says, you know what you should have said? You should have said, you know, Mr. Reynolds, I'm sure that in your over 40 years performing that you might have done an introduction before in your life. And since you have starred in more movies than I've ever seen, maybe you should just say, go on out there and have fun. But he's yelling this in his locker room with, and everybody stops and they're all staring at me. So I said, well, Mr. Reynolds, and you're over 40 years of performing. <laughs> I'm sure you've announced a thing or two. I'll tell you what, why don't you just go on out there and have some fun? And I walked out of the dressing room feeling about two inches tall. And he went out and did it exactly like I asked him to do. And at the end of the night came up and apologized to me and went to being a great guy all over again. But yeah, I got cussed out and chewed out by Burt Reynolds and Madison score garden. All right, Bruce, let's take a time out right now to tell everybody how you can make some money. It's March madness. And we're pretty fired up to bring everybody bet with We're talking about pro tips from the world's premier handicappers, the best handicappers in the world. We're talking about, of course, the Philly Godfather and his pack of animals, but don't take our word for it. Bruce, in my research, I found that over the last six March madness tournaments, these guys picks have hit 64.7% of the time. That's unbelievable. Yeah, freak out, freak out. It is, but it's macho March Madness, uh-huh. No, these guys are the best that there is, Conrad. I've never seen anything like it. I've gone through the numbers and gone through their picks, and the Philly Godfather has got it down to a science. You think you do research? Man, you ought to see the kind of research this guy does, and just go visit thephillygodfather.com and get his picks, because, folks, if you want to win you got to listen to a winner and the Philly Godfather is a winner. They've even got some really cool offers where you can get some free cash from some different sports books. It's all going down right now at betwithbruce.com. Take a look at it. And if you decide you want to have a leg up and not just win that corny office pool, but some real dough, then go to betwithbruce.com and you can get all the Philly Godfather's picks this March Madness for just 99 bucks. And as if that wasn't enough, some free cash from the sports books, Check it out right now. You'd be glad you did. It's betwithbruce.com. Did uh, he hook up with that hair club for men guy while y'all were there together? No, I think he had his own guy. Okay. So one of the things that I know we're going to get written about, um, Bruce is mistaken. This is a different time with, with Barry Windham and Burt Reynolds, but. Barry was there. I'm telling you, Barry was there. I'm not arguing. He may not have been on the card. He was there. I'm not arguing that he wasn't at the building and hanging out or whatever, but I think he was NWA champion for WCW at the time. No, he was not. (laughs) He is on the pay-per-view the next month for WCW. I mean, he was not in the company. It's okay though. We're allowed to make mistakes here on the show. No, we're not. Oh, well, I close. I'm not, I just want to cut down the fucking tweets. I'm trying to help you. If you'll let me help you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. Next up, man, go out of your way. Go watch it. I'm going to argue that this is, I'm not going to argue it. This is the best opening match in the history of WrestleMania. Owen Hart pins Bret Hart in 20 minutes and 26 seconds. It's outstanding. We can't possibly do it enough justice. Meltzer gave it four and three quarter stars. Fuck that. It's five stars. It's outstanding. 
Uh, that's just my opinion. I think it's one of the more underrated Bret Hart matches, probably Owen's best match ever really showcased, uh, how talented Owen really was and was a phenomenal story. And the only thing that I found weird watching it back was I really wish we had some reaction shots from Helen and Stu. What'd you think of the match? And, uh, you watched it this week for the first time in forever. Uh, it still holds up. Does it not? It would have been 10 stars in the Tokyo dome. Yeah. One of the, without a doubt, the greatest, uh, opening WrestleMania match ever. It was, it could have, it could have closed the show and not a single person would have been disappointed. That story building up to everything that we did was flawlessly told but the best part about it was it was the coming out party for Owen Hart where he showed everybody I'm a player, I'm a main event guy and you couldn't deny him anymore. And the, the other funny part about it was leading into it, Brett thought Brett should have gone over. And that was never the plan. It was like, no, Owen has to beat you. You have to come from underneath and you're, you're coming from underneath to, to win the championship at the end of the night. Um, and then he was, you know, he was fine once he, once he knew that, but you know, getting into it, it was like, holy shit. Uh, we're going with the heart attack tour after this in the summer with you and Owen. I think that that match set the stage better than, than anything and gave Owen bragging rights to, which we found out later on, you give Owen Hart an inch, he's going to take a mile when it comes to whatever you give him. So him beating Brett, I beat you, Brett was the greatest thing to ever happen to him. Let me just tell you the way this show starts with Owen winning with a phenomenal finish. It's very, it's not something like you would see today. I just thought it was so good, but then the visual at the end of the show, I hate to just skip there right now. It was fucking outstanding. I mean, really, really well done. I hadn't seen it in a long time and it hit me right in the feels go out of your way to watch this. Just an amazing match with a very relatable story. And you know, the way, you know, the Owens sort of story here is sibling rivalry, of course. And I never got the opportunities, you know, you've always taken them for away from me and you've always been in the spotlight and it's my turn and I'm the better wrestler and I'm the more talented heart and the more talented brother. And you're getting all of these things that really should be rightfully mine. And he beats him in the opening match. And it's this big crowning moment. And he even has this big interview backstage where he's saying, you know, this was a great moment and it was all for me. And I've proven it to everybody that I'm the better heart and I'm the better wrestler. And then at the end of the night, the brother he beat becomes world champion. And he just has to watch as all of their, you know, coworkers celebrate him. And he's got the big belt and the big crowd response and the big celebration, even though he beat him just a couple hours prior. Phenomenal I story. Beat you, Brett. I beat you, Brett. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And anybody with a sibling and with a little bit of that sibling rivalry rivalry could relate. It is um it, it does stand out as great as the match was. That post match promo, Owen was not nearly as confident outside of the ropes as he was in. But did you guys ever consider giving him a mouthpiece? 
We we actually did talk about Jim Cornette. However, th- there was the feeling that giving Owen a mouthpiece would have taken away from the the genuine story between he and Brett. So it was okay. Brett wasn't a great promo either, but it was okay that Owen wasn't as good because he was the little brother that thought he was better. So him stuttering and stammering and and and, and, and Brett and that made it real. And that made you go, Oh, fuck you. Owen. you're not that good. Um, we did consider it. We, we did consider it. We talked about it, but we thought it would take away from the overall story with Brett and Owen. What a phenomenal match. Go back and watch it. One of the things that stands out is the unique camera shot where it's shot from above the ring. Was that installed specifically for the ladder match? And then you guys decided to just try it on other matches. Whose idea was that? It's phenomenal. It was only for the ladder match, and Vince hates that shot. Why does he hate Absolutely it? I love it. There's it. so many classic wrestling photographs and, and old Muhammad Ali boxing photographs that are iconic because they're from that angle. I think it's a cool angle. What say you? I, I love it. Uh, now, not overused, but I love getting that aspect. I love that perspective when you're looking down and you're it puts you, to me, that puts you more kind of in the moment a lot of times than anything else. You can be in the ring with the camera. I don't know. I, I've always been a fan of it. Vince hated it. I know you'd always been pushing for Owen in the back. You always saw him as being underutilized. Was anybody else pushing back on this? Was how much of this match was the office just sort of placating Brett? As far as the Owen match? Yeah. Just as far as getting his brother in this spot. I mean, uh, were there some people who were like, ugh, I don't see it, pal. There probably were, but I don't know that anybody ever expressed that to us because it was for a guy like Brett and a guy like Owen who had paid their dues. Owen was deserving, and I don't think anybody would have ever argued that. Was he the biggest guy in the world in the best promo? No. So I think there might have been in amongst the boys, but nobody ever voiced that and said, oh, it should be me instead of him, or Owen's not ready because Owen was ready. And it did good business and Owen Hart and that Bret Hart, that whole scenario worked. Tremendous. Go out of your way to watch it. Can't say enough nice things about it. Now let's get to the next match, which is, uh, well, not quite the same. Bam, bam, Bigelow <laughs> and Ludwig Sean are going to be doink and dink here in six minutes and nine seconds. I guess when you're putting a card together, you probably do need after you had the fans up, you got to bring them down a little bit. Well, this did it. Maybe they needed a breather, uh, just because of what it is. Uh, it's hard to really rate it as a match, but Meltzer did his best. He gave it started three quarters. I guess it's funny if, if you like to see, uh, a little person mixed tag like this, it's, I don't know. The rumor in innuendo is that Bam Bam didn't like Matt Bourne though. And he didn't like losing to the clown gimmick. And, uh, apparently Again, this is rumor and innuendo. He snitched to the office that he had been smoking weed in his hotel room, which got him fired in December. Do you remember any of that? That's not what got him fired in December. He didn't do well on a test. And Matt also had a bit of a attitude, I guess, if you will. And Matt was just going through some really tough times. 
and Matt wasn't playing well with others. So Matt was gone and uh, Ray Apollo was in. Ray was a friend of, of Bam Bam's and was brought in to do the doink gimmick. I, I didn't think that he did. He wasn't a quarter of the doink that Matt Bourne was. But no, Bam Bam, I think that where that comes from is Bam Bam and Matt Bourne didn't get along. And Ray Apollo was Bam Bam's friend. So probably people put that on Bam Bam. Oh, Bam Bam did this to get his buddy in. I I never heard that. And that may have been scuttlebutt amongst the boys and just kind of thinking that because he brought his buddy in to do the gimmick that that's what he did. But it was a clash of personalities and a clash of styles. And Matt was a star. Matt was a star with that doink gimmick. Was there any... Um... Anything else pitched for what this match could have looked like? Maybe Luna does something different. Maybe there's another, another little person, uh, for Dink to wrestle, or is this always, oh, here's what we'll do. It just kind of fell into it because of the gimmickiness of it. And we talked about having a little bam, bam <laughs> and couldn't find one. So uh, fuck, you could basically have a little bam, bam in Luna with the tattoos on her head and the fire and all that shit. Oh. So, you know. Did you just call Luna with Sean little bam, bam? She a female bam, bam. Let's just fucking stop the show right now. We ain't beating that Luna with Sean is little bam, bam. I never even saw it with the head tattoo until you said it. Then I was like, damn it. It was right there. How did I miss it? Yes. It's a perfect couple. Little bam, bam, my female goodness. bam, bam there. No, this is bam, bam. I need to go with little bam, bam. Cause when you said, where could you find a little bam, bam? I was like, well, the fucking Flintstones and, but you know, different time. Here's some cartoony shit though for you. Randy Savage and crush are going to go nine minutes and 43 seconds at a false count anywhere match where falls aren't counting really as the finish of the match. Victory is only achieved when one person couldn't return to the ring after a fall, which I guess is a flawed concept because it's false count anywhere. I don't know. Um, Meltzer would say at a house show in San Jose, which may have been the first night they tried this concept. They had a fall end in the ring. And then had to roll out of the ring to make the concept work. So this is at least better. Crush gets the first fall, a fall, first fall in the aisle in 45 seconds, which is pretty phenomenal. Lots of other falls, but the, the finish is just outstanding. He's supposed <laughs> it, the macho man is backstage with crush and he's trying to hang crush upside down. So he he ties his feet up, gets him hooked up to this apparatus, pulls this rope around, uh, above him and then over to the side and he's trying to tie the rope, but clearly no one has actually tried this and the walkthroughs or anything. They just think, you know how to tie a knot, right? Brother or some shit because live, as soon as he lets go, crush just falls to the ground and macho man sprints to the ring and he wins. But dude, this is like the most botcha mania shit on the entire show. Is it not? fucking horrible. I hate to speak ill of the dead, but this match was Randy. Randy really wanted to have this match. Randy wanted to have a big kind of blow off with, with crush with Brian. They were good friends. Shaka bra brother. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and Randy had this thing in his head. So we tried it. It was, we, we wanted to, 
to try this concept and he had it all in his head and however he explained it originally and the idea of crush hanging upside down and you tie him off and and when they walk through it it's got him up and i forget he held him up just to see if he could get him up but then he had nowhere to tie him to it was ill-conceived poorly executed and a debacle is about the nicest thing I can say about it. It was about nine minutes too long. There wasn't, there just wasn't any psychology to it. To and be, to be clear, you know, the, Brian, ma- the match is nine forty three, and you're saying it's nine minutes too long. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Maybe nine and a half minutes too long, but it, it was just, wasn't good. You know, crush, not selling Randy shit. shit. Randy, not selling. It just wasn't. They loved each other. They were best of friends, but they had no chemistry. They had no chemistry working together. And, and this was, a an apparent display of that. Yeah. Yeah. It was bad. It was fucking, I mean, I, we, we were dying a thousand deaths. I know that. I know this end. I know that crush is, is Randy's boy. I know he had to push for him to be in this spot. But this concept of the match, who deserves the blame? Well, we do for putting it on. Even worse is I think this is Randy's last televised match in the company. I mean, with all that this dude accomplished and did for the WWF, and this is our last memory of him as an in-ring competitor. And it was his and it was all his idea. All of it, the angle, the match, the finish, everything. Scary. Can we can we agree that he deserved better for his last in-ring appearance? Well, sure, but no one knew it was going to be his last in-ring appearance. And it was also a time of Vince wanting to give him what he wanted and allow him that opportunity. It's, you know, we wanted Randy to come and work behind the scenes and come up with things creatively. So, okay, Randy, you have this idea, you have this and the biggest stage. Let's, let's see it. Let's do it. I know you've complained, you know, last January, when you went back to Monday night raw and did the 25th anniversary about how much, you know, God, we did 19, um, not not auditions, uh, walkthroughs, you know, just over and over and over, just, just practicing. But when you see him try to tie crush up, and he can't, and he just falls to the bottom. That is, that is uh, exhibit a of why you guys should continue to do the walkthroughs. Is it not? Absolutely. And we did do a walkthrough with it. That's the, that's the crazy thing about it. We did a walkthrough with this. That's why it's so fucking crazy. The it was terrible. It just, all of it was terrible. Snake bit is the word. There you go. Next shits, up shits is the word. Too. There you go. There you go. All right. Let's talk about something else here on the show that just feels a little out of place. Alundra blaze and Leilani Kai are going to have a match. Alundra is going to retain her WWF women's title winning with the German suplex and three minutes and 23 seconds. Melts were right. They didn't have a chance. They exploded fireworks for blazes ring entrance to try and get over that. She's something special and that women's matches are important, but nobody is buying it yet. 
The two did all they could given the amount of time they had, but had the most negative heat. And in the building, people treated it as if it was intermission. It's going to be a very long and very difficult process in getting this division over star and three quarters. Uh, I know that Leilani Kyle worked the first WrestleMania against Wendy Richter. I'm guessing that's why she's in the spot, but man, they probably could have picked somebody else here for Alundra blaze. Alundra's working hard, but, uh, crowd ain't buying it. This is the epitome of ahead of their time. Is it not? Yeah, it wasn't a plethora of young female talent to choose from either here. Leilani was picked for two reasons. One, that it was nostalgia that Leilani competed in the first WrestleMania. And two, uh, Alundra felt that she could have a decent match with her. So we wanted Alundra to look good, get a victory. And it was a novelty match. It was a novelty to have Leilani back 10 years later competing for the women's championship again. And that's one of those, well, there you go. It was what it was. You know, the women's title's only been back a few months at this point. No discussion to put Luna in that spot. I know Bull Nakano's not here yet. She's going to come in a little later. Does feel like he could have brought somebody else in though. How much of that match being dead do you think is because of Leilani Kai? And how much is it just because it's women and, and the crowd's not ready for it yet? <laughs> I think it's people are going, fuck this savage crush match is finally over. And now I'm looking at Leilani Kai. Didn't I look at her 10 years ago? It's all the above. And, you know, again, there, there wasn't a lot of women wrestlers to choose from at that point. They, they weren't, there just weren't a lot out there. And the nostalgia aspect of it and everything else just kind of worked and was what it was. Uh, men on a mission are out next and they beat the Quebecers by count out. So the Quebecers retain the tag title in seven minutes and 45 seconds. Meltzer would write, given their participants. And I'm speaking of men on a mission. The match didn't have much of a chance of being good. Guess what? It wasn't. Although there were a few good moves thrown in Pierre was backdropped over the top rope by Jacques into almost a backwards tope on the Mo. Mo pulled off a somersault body block in the ring. And the Quebecers did a double team suplex on Mabel, which got a crowd pop because they teased not being able to do it. Although that's traditionally a babyface spot. Uh, MOM did their finisher on Pierre while Oscar stopped Johnny Polo from interfering. Mo clotheslined Pierre over the top rope and Mabel splashed him on the floor and he was counted out. The finish was really weak. A star and a quarter. Yeah. This match is, uh, it's interesting, I guess, because. Uh, PCO has made uh, a resurgence in the last couple of years and, uh, making a name for himself once again, with a totally new gimmick now with ring of honor and, uh, well, Raven is here as Johnny Polo as a manager and people talk about him being one of the smartest guys in wrestling, but he's Johnny Polo here. What'd you think watching this back for the first time in a long time? Well, I just had flashbacks and going back through the entire card and, and Brett and Owen went long, Randy and, um, crush went long. So that's why I always laugh when I see these times, because these times mean nothing to me. My time starts when I'm timing out a show from the time a talent walks out of the entrance until they're back, uh, TV time the moment they're on TV. That's their time. So I'd already had a few matches going heavy. So the show's heavy now. And I asked these guys to go out and cut their match and 
make up some time for me. And they went out and they took all of their time plus a couple of minutes. So when they came back, I was, I was frustrated and I was pissed because I'm, I'm already heavy. I know I've got a lot more show to go. And they asked me how the match was. I said, you know what? The fucking match was heavy. And everyone walked away except for Jacques Rougeau, who stayed <laughs> in front of me for probably the next 20 minutes arguing with me that he wasn't heavy and that they, they had their time and that they even shaved some time off. And I said, Jacques, I mean, there's nothing we can do about it now. Okay, please. I, I got a show to do and I just, I'm done next. But he just kept arguing with me and telling me that they didn't go over. And then the next day he went back and he he timed it. And he says, actually, we I said, no, Jacques, that's not how I time. And that's not how I told you the time works. The time is from the minute that the first guy walked out until you guys come back. That's your time. You want to go fucking time it now? Well, that's not what I understand. I'm, I don't give a fuck what you understand. But, I mean, that was... God, the flashbacks while I was watching going, oh, shit, I remember. And the arguments that went on because it was – I had a runaway train, and they weren't helping. Uh, your first time in a while probably seeing our great, our great close personal friend of the show who's opened for us a dozen times now, Oscar for Men on a Mission. What did you think of his rap here? Come on, Bruce. Come on. I always enjoyed Oscar's raps. Um, you know, he, he was a damn good rapper. And, and at that time, you know, you, you go back 1994, that was topical shit. And I thought he was pretty damn good. I enjoyed his shit. Most people didn't like men on a mission as a, as a whole, but I did enjoy his raps. I don't know why, but that makes me laugh that you said Oscar was a damn good rapper. He was, I, I, uh, I'm not arguing. I'm just saying it makes me laugh. I'm allowed to say that you don't listen to a lot of rap. But you, listen to a little bit. you weren't listening to rap in 1994. You don't know what I was listening to. Yes, I do. I was listening to rap in 1994. Oscar. I wasn't listening to Oscar. <laughs> I was not watching wrestling in 94, but I was listening to rap in 94. Let's keep it going. Uh, Yokozuna and Lex Luger are up next. You know, I know people sort of bag on Lex and say that, ah, oh, he didn't look the same in the WWF. He looked fucking phenomenal here. And I know people are critical and say, oh, he lost size or this or that. Dude, he looked like a million bucks here. And as you like to say, then the bell rang. There are some rest holds in here where Yokozuna just has a hand on like a, a trap and then he's got his arm but not really applying any pressure. And it just looks like they're just sitting in the middle of the ring doing nothing. And you can tell Mr. Perfect is looking on thinking the exact same thing. And clearly the director knows that because you got to start taking wide shots. Like, okay, this is a good time to get a crowd shot. Just really, really fucking bad. It's way too long. Yoko gets the win after 14 minutes and 40 seconds. He wins by DQ. Uh, Mr. Perfect is the special guest referee, as I said. So of course, you know, that's going to play something in here. Uh, Meltz would say on the confidential run sheet before the show, the match was listed as being 25 minutes. Holy shit. That can't be real. He even writes, thank God it didn't last that long. One nerve hold after another. 
And he's uh, guessing here that Yoko is probably 580 pounds. And uh, he calls this match nerve hold a mania. Uh, of course the match happens to come to an end when, uh, Mr. Perfect is not calling the fall and keeps checking on Mr. Fuji. Finally, Luger is fed up with that grabs, Mr. Perfect count the fall. And that causes the DQ They do a little post-match argument backstage, but it's a total screw job that lets Lex Luger stay strong in the booking. I guess the crowd wasn't having it though. They were chanting boring throughout the match. And then at the end of the match, chanting bullshit, it gets half a star. Not the best showing from Luger and Yokozuna. What'd you think? Well, uh, I'd love to tell you what I think, but I fell asleep. <laughs> um, Jesus Christ. To, to think that that was presented in night, that was a feature match. It was like a WWE championship match. Fucking horrible. And, uh, you know, shit that couldn't break an egg. And just laying there and doing nothing. Um, you know, Vince still wanted to keep Lex in the hunt, still wanted people to have faith in Lex, which is why we did the screw finish and bring perfect back and, and do something with Lex and perfect feeling that perfect could get the most out of Lex. It takes two to tango and Yoko was heavy here, but you know, Lex, there's ways to work around that. There's ways to make that exciting. If, if you know what the hell you're doing, but I think that the guys were just kind of getting through it and thankful that it was over. Um, it, it kind of sad it, to, to watch it in, in some ways because you're, you're watching Yokozuna going, man, I, I remember when Rodney was 315 pounds and moving like a 150 pounder. And then you watch this and go, ew, a little difficult to watch. I'll tell you, I was still impressed with like Yoko took a bump from the inside of the ring to the out. That was pretty impressive, it, uh, especially at that weight. Yeah, it is some of the moves, but again, you, you take that and you look at the overall time involved in it and one bump isn't going to save that. So yes, he did some impressive shit, but it, he needs to have an opponent that can work all around his shortcomings and make it look like, you know, give me the illusion of movement with guys bouncing all around him. And then when Yoko does something, it's sudden, it's impactful and you feel it. I don't know. Lex had the, the ability to do that or really know what to do with that. I mean, at this point, Vince McMahon, it felt like after SummerSlam had sort of given up on Lex Luger and, and we'll, we'll talk about that another time, but it does feel like maybe he changed his mind because he wins the Royal rumble. But then you see this match. Ooh, not good. Uh, and I guess we should address the rumor in innuendo. We did in our Lex Luger episode. There's been tons of rumors over the years that the finish is supposed to be Lex winning the world title. And supposedly he blabbed about it to reporters the, a week prior and then Vince changed it. Now, of course, Luger denied that, that he ever told somebody in a bar or restaurant or however that rumor got started, that that's what was going to happen. But we just talked about earlier in the show where Vince McMahon introduced him as the WWF world champion at a television taping. And you said, ah, oh, that was just to fuck with Dave. Anything else to add to that story? 
No, not really. You know, again, man, here you look at the the whole Lex thing. It's the verdict was still out or uh, the jury was still out on Lex. And after after January, Vince pretty much knew what he wanted to do, but he we kept it close to the vest. And yeah, no, it wasn't. It wasn't going to be Lex pretty much from January on. The uh, Lex Express episode, which we did very early in our run here on Something to Wrestle, we'll revisit another time. Next up, we've got this uh, weird promo from Harvey Whippleman and the Fink. This uh, obviously Fink is over in New York City whenever he was making appearances there, even though he wasn't in the limelight. He's just in the crowd and fans would spot him, you know, just a few years ago. They're chanting his name. He is a part of that New York crowd and that new york culture seems a little weird here though but it was still fun to watch howard finkel's howard finkel man he's he's the he's the fucking shit man he's awesome and here's an opportunity to to do something with howard and have fun with it i thought this was the best howard ever looked with his new hair you didn't like it well, I know that you'll love the way you look with your new hair. You see 66% of men lose their hair by the age of 35, but thankfully baldness is now optional because of four It's a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. And, uh, Bruce, you haven't had an issue with thinning hair, but I know that gimmick wasn't working like it used to be, but four really hit the spot. Tell them Bruce. Well, 4Hems can connect you with real doctors, medical grade solutions to treat your hair loss. And these are well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. This isn't snake oil, pills, or gas station counter supplements. No, just go to 4Hems.com, answer a few quick questions, and a doctor's going to review and he'll prescribe the right medication for you. Then the products are shipped directly to your door. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward in-person doctor visits. And you too can have great hair, as Howard Finkel, I'm sure, would say. And if you order now, our listeners get a trial month of hymns for just $5 today, right now, while supplies last. Uh, go to the website for full details. And this would cost you hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. Go to 4 slash W-W-E. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash W-W-E. Forehams.com slash W-W-E. Dude, dude, dude. Next up. Dude, dude, dude. Adam Bomb runs in to try to rough up Fink. An earthquake ain't having it, man. He uh, comes out and gets the win in 35 seconds, which is, uh, I don't know, man. Pretty random and thrown together. I'm sure they were glad to be on the show, but I kind of forgot when this started that Adam bomb was even on this pay-per-view. I think most people did <laughs> at a problem. Adam bomb probably thinks that he wasn't on the show, but nice little, just high spot for Harvey and Howard and bomb and quake and get everybody on the show and get it going. Plus size Sperling got a nice little plug. Yeah. You talk about organic ads my goodness all right so let's talk about the next match it's probably one of the most famous matches in wwf history certainly near the top of the list for the best wrestlemania matches of all time 
And there's two matches like that on this show. Of course, we opened with Brett and Owen, and now we're here for the one everybody talks about. The first ladder match of real prominence that anyone remembers. Now, of course, there were lots that were on, you know, house shows and smaller spot shows, and even one on a Coliseum release years before. But at a WrestleMania and a big stage like this, what a story this is. Razor Ramon and Shawn Michaels. Shawn, of course, going home with the belt, not dropping it. They create a new title. Razor earns that one. And now when Sean comes back, he's got a natural cause to have a feud with Razor Ramon because there's two intercontinental champions. Who is the real intercontinental champion? Well, we'll decide tonight when we hang two intercontinental titles from the ceiling and we're going to let these guys battle it out with a ladder. The match is phenomenal. We've talked about it before on a Razor Ramon episode. It got five stars in the observer. And it really paved the way for a lot of what would become normal in the years to come. And Meltzer even called that. He says, watch how ladder matches now become the hottest gimmick on the indie scene, because this is going to be something people talk about for a long time in the observer write-up Meltzer, Meltzer even says, if you haven't seen this match, make sure you do as it'll be remembered for many years. And here we are the 25 year anniversary and people are still talking about it. These guys go 18 minutes and 47 seconds. Just a phenomenal moment in wrestling history. Tell us how it came to be, what you remember about the way they put the match together, because it is pretty innovative, especially at the time, and what the reaction was backstage as it's going on. Well, as far as you had a natural, Sean had left with the championship and we never lost it. So we moved on. Razor became the champion. And when Sean came back, Pat and I were like, well, wait a minute, he never lost the title. So why not come back and make claim to the championship? Just say, Hey, I decided to take off or whatever and lay claim to the championship. Say Razor's an imposter. He didn't beat him for the title, so on and so forth. And that's how we got to put the two championships in the middle of the ring and whoever gets them, you're the rightful intercontinental champion. Well, through the the year, I guess, if you will, uh, Brett had come and exposed the ladder match and, and brought the idea to Pat about a match that they had had in Calgary. And it was with a ladder and you hang the belt or the prize, whatever it is in the middle of the ring, use the ladder to climb up. But he says, but you use the ladder for all these spots in the middle, you know, in the match, you can put it in the corner. You can hit people with it. You can do all this shit. And it was Brett's idea. It was Brett brought it to us and everybody loved it. Brett was in the first one. I think he actually worked with Sean in the first ladder match that we had. And then the idea with the two championships, it was just logical. It was right there. Put the belts in the middle of the ring up high, let them fight for it. And we used the ladder match there. And I think that, I don't know that Brett was, upset in the beginning, you know, of advertising the ladder match and that these two guys are going to have a ladder match. I think there was a part of him that was upset at the end when people said, Oh my God, Sean and, and Razor ladder match, best match I've ever seen. Greatest thing in the whole wide world. And then the ladder match became Sean's and Sean was synonymous with the ladder. Sean and Razor were synonymous with the greatest ladder match of all time. And, you know, Brett's like, that's my match. 
That's, you know, I brought that. I, that's, that's my deal. That's my gimmick. Um, and Vince will always say, you know, it's, it's a great idea. Maybe not for the guy that brings it, but I may use it for somebody else. And that's what happened with the ladder match. And by performance alone, Sean and razor made it their calling card. What's interesting too, is they work a slower pace. They really get over the brutality of the actual ladder and it's brand new. So it all just feels special. And there's been a ton of riskier and, and more high risk and dangerous ladder matches to follow. But I still think this is probably everyone's favorite. Is it your favorite? It is my favorite uh, because it was the first. And I thought that the psychology around it was superb. They told a great story. There was a great story to be told anyway with, you know, who's the rightful champion. But then when you put it in the match and the way that they worked the ladder and getting to it was, man, that was unheard of at that time. You know, no one had ever seen it. And they took that prop and made it something special. So it, it was a landmark match that people can all point back to. And I, a lot of great ladder matches have taken place since then, but that original still holds up today as being one of the greatest, not just ladder matches, but matches of all time. Find us on social media at Pritchard show, whether you're, you like Twitter, you like Instagram, tell us what your favorite ladder match was. I'm interested in getting that debate going. I do want to mention one other little thing here, uh, because there's been a lot of heat from, you know, one side or the other over the years, I think Ric Flair has gone on record as saying this match is famous because, uh, Shawn Michaels wrestled a ladder sort of downplaying razor's contribution to the match. And Bret Hart, I believe has even written that he was the one who brought the ladder match to the WWE and he resents Shawn for being the one to bring it to pay-per-view. How would you respond to either one of those criticisms? Well, I just said, Brett, yeah, I mean, that that's true about Brett. And I, I don't necessarily agree with Rick because I thought razor did a hell of a job in there and you needed, you needed that steady big guy, uh, to work with. And Shawn Michaels could work with a broomstick and in this case, a ladder, but razor was every bit as responsible for that match and, and did a hell of a job in it all throughout. So kudos to him as well. Over the years, uh, Sean has earned a reputation for going long at WrestleMania. Uh, with the idea being, you know, Hey, we're live. What are they going to do? Did he go long here? He didn't go longer than was scheduled. He did go long, but not, I mean, when I say he went long, I wanted them to shorten it up, but they took all of their time. And because they took all their time, I canceled the 10 man tag that was scheduled to go right after it in between, uh, the ladder match and the main event, just to kind of bring things down a little bit, but I made that decision and that was my decision. Um, it was my decision to make and I called it midway through the ladder match because I knew that I wasn't going to have time to get all those guys out there and get them all back. Even if I only had a 30 second match, I just wanted to make sure that Brett and Yoko had the time that they needed for their match. And I buzzed Vince on the headset and let him know what I was going to do. I got a thumbs up and did what I had to do, but that wasn't. It wasn't just Brett and Razor. It was going all the way back to the first match with Brett and Owen. I mean, Sean and Razor. Uh, but it goes all the way back to, to Brett and Owen in the first match. And then Randy and Crush. And I never caught up. I just, I, I never caught up. And I kept asking guys to shave. Kept asking guys to shave. And 
nobody shaved. And what happened? I had to cut a match. And that was 100% my call. That was my decision. And I, I stand by it. Let's get to the main event here. That's why, uh, you know, this whole show was built. You know, we, we celebrated WrestleMania one with Hulk Hogan posing in the, in the middle of the ring. And, and he's the hero of the first several WrestleManias, even WrestleMania nine, but now it's the new generation. And this is what we're here for. Bret Hart pins Yokozuna in 10 minutes and 36 seconds to win the WWF title. And Meltzer would call it an anticlimactic match. Roddy Piper is the special guest referee that you've alluded to earlier. And, um, Meltzer would say Hart tried all he could, but this was nowhere near as good as their match at last year's WrestleMania or numerous house shows between the two. At one point, Piper decked Cornette, several near falls that get good pops, but the finish was weak with Yokozuna setting up Hart for the bonsai, but slipping and losing his balance and getting pinned as a result. And after the match, about a half dozen faces, including Luger hit the ring for the celebration with McMahon, Pat Patterson, and gorilla monsoon in as well. And Owen Hart comes down the aisle for a final scene, giving Brett a dirty look to end the show two and a quarter stars. I feel like he plays down the final scene. I loved it, especially when, you know, the story they're trying to tell with the brother and the sibling rivalry and the fact that he just beat him a couple hours ago, it was cool to see McMahon get in the ring. Cause that was something that wasn't very common back then. It was neat to see Pat Patterson out there and gorilla monsoon. There's the big tease of, Hey, Luger's in here and he didn't really lose his match earlier, but he was screwed out of his title shot. What will this be? And when Brett extends his hand, Luger shakes it and, and it's fine. The finish though, I didn't hate it. Um, but it doesn't feel like, you know, they've positioned Brett Hart to be this monster slayer instead. Uh, he, um, just takes advantage of Yokozuna almost beating himself. And it feels like that happened in both title matches. Lex Luger didn't really lose. He pushed uh, a referee who wasn't maybe, uh, calling it straight down the middle and, and lost by DQ. And now Bret Hart didn't really beat Yokozuna. Yokozuna kind of beat himself because he himself tripped and fell. Was the booking done here to protect everybody? Maybe a mistake in hindsight and, and took us, took something away from what could have been Brett's big moment in your opinion? No, because I think that, you know, Brett, Brett pinned Yoko. He beat him and, and he pinned him whether Yoko tripped or what have you, Brett still pinned him and he won the championship and it wasn't a screw or anything funky like that. Um, did he make him submit to the sharpshooter? No, because we had to make Yoko, we had to keep Yoko good and we wanted to keep Yoko good for undertaker in the summer. But you know, you go back and watch it. Yoko was gassed. I mean, oh my God, he was, (laughs) it was like he was out of breath walking to the ring and just out of shape. And it, and it was, it was again, that, that part of it, watching Yoko lumber around the ring was a little difficult to watch at times. Brett did a, you know, Brett did a lot better job than Lex did with him because Brett worked around it and made everything as best he could, but it was a short match meant to get the championship on Brett Hart and to get to our story with Brett and Owen kind of forget about Yoko for a little bit. You got to your story with perfect and Luger earlier, and now Yoko's going to kind of go off. And now undertaker comes back later on and you have your series of matches there. So we're trying to serve an awful lot of masters. However, I will say the, which is something that we don't do. And we didn't do then. I loved 
the shot of Owen on the end because it, it foreshadowed what, what was to come and reminded you of what took place, you know, several hours earlier. I beat you, Brett. I'm the fucking guy. I beat the champion and I'll do it again. To me, that was, I loved it. And it it just kind of put a nice little bow on the end of the show. It was a fun finish. You know, the, all the guys, uh, put Brett on their shoulders. You see the macho man jump up on the ropes and point to him. He's doing all he can to sort of lend his celebrity and credibility with the fans to put over Brett. It's a fun moment. And, uh, it really is Brett's night because Brett wins the world title again, overcoming the obstacle of having to wrestle twice and had a real classic to open the show. So after WrestleMania Luger sort of fades back into the mid card. And by the next year is gone from the company, of course, jumping to debut on the first nitro for WCW. Do you feel like maybe there was a missed opportunity here? I mean, should Lex have tried to turn heel at the end of the night, feeling like he was screwed or were you guys even considering that at this point? In order for him to turn heel and mean anything as a heel at this point, he would have had to have meant a lot more as a baby face. Not only had we lost confidence in Lex, the audience had lost confidence in Lex. And I don't think that they would have, would have cared. I just, it was, it was an experiment with Lex and, and tried everything that we could. And for various reasons, just didn't work. So I skipped over the fact that diesel was here with Shawn Michaels before being ordered to the back at this point, did you guys already have really high hopes for diesel moving forward or was he too green and just trying to feel it out? Oh God. He, he was, he was still considered green, but boy, you could see those wheels spinning with Vince, that big bastard. And just looking at him and going one day, we're, you know, we're going to get to that point where he's going to mean money and he's, he's going to be something big. So yeah, the wheels were always spinning with Vince because he's big, mean, nasty looking son of a bitch. When all the dust was settled and the night's over, how does Vince feel at the end of the night? I mean, not one, not what the face he puts on for everybody else, but you're on the inner circle. It's the first WrestleMania sans Hulk Hogan. Did it feel like something was missing? Something was different. No, Vince was actually happy. And Vince, Vince was happy that we anointed, uh, Brett, but he was even happier for Owen and felt that we've got a really strong story to take us into the summer. He was also ecstatic over the ladder match and, just fawned over that and thought that was one of the greatest spectacles he had ever seen. So to those two points that Brett's now your champion and he's got a strong adversary in Owen Hart, that was like, yeah, you know, Hogan can go do whatever he's going to do. We're going to build new. So he was, he was on a high and he was pleased with the outcome of the show. Let's talk about, you know, the other rumor and innuendos. Lawler has mentioned that before all the legal trouble happened, he was probably going to be somebody who would feud with Bret Hart for the world title. Was that ever even discussed as far as you know? Lawler and Bret, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for them to have a little program. But again, you know, we weren't looking at Lawler as a, a competitor. Lawler was great doing the color commentary and that's where Vince wanted to keep him, bring him out for special occasions like we did on pay-per-views from time to time and thinking that 
that may be a good, you know, short pay-per-view run, somebody for Brett to beat, but it's, it's logical. And it would have been a, to me, the promos would have been great with Lawler talking about being the king and Brett, it just wrote itself. Let's get to some questions here. These wrote themselves this week. Lots of people are interested in WrestleMania 10 and I'm excited to cover it with you. Let's do some rapid fire ones. Are you ready? I am ready. Daniel wants to know after this show was Owen Hart ever considered to be WWF champion. And in Bruce's opinion is Owen Hart, the greatest performer in company history to never win the world title. We did discuss Owen beating Brett for the championship. And I don't think that Vince ever really saw it. I don't know that. I I don't know why I think that had Owen beat Brett, that we could have taken that we could have taken that all the way to SummerSlam to have Brett be victorious and still gotten even a little bit more out of it. It was just such a rich story with those two. And yeah, we discussed it, but, um, Vince didn't think people would buy it. Adam wants to know in Bruce's opinion, what's better, the traditional wrestling match that opened the show with Brett and Owen or the gimmick ladder match with Shawn Michaels and Scott Hall. I'm sticking with what opened Brett and Owen. I kind of thought you'd say that. Uh, Dan wants to know since the feud with Mr. Perfect never really materialized and Luger was never a serious title contender in the WWF after this, why not have Luger beat Yoko or I'm sorry, Yoko beat Luger. So Brett's victory over Yokozuna meant a little more at the end of the night. Because we still had hopes of actually doing that program. We didn't, couldn't tell the future. So we were hoping it would mean a little bit more. Uh, Richard wants to know, is it possible that Bruce could sing a WrestleMania 10 style rap by men on a mission, except in the style of Jim Cornette? Look, the only rap I can ever remember from Oscar these days is when he comes and introduces us at our show. And as Jim Cornette would say, come on, Bruce, come on, Bruce, you motherfucker. Get the fuck out of here with your stupid fucking music. I'm going to Wendy's get a triple with cheese. Double on you, double mayo, motherfucker. I can't believe we get some. Fuck you. Thank you. I can't believe we get so many questions about this, but we got dozens of questions about the spittle and Owen's mouth. <laughs> like, I don't know. People are like asking me to ask you, why did he have that? Why didn't someone tell him to wipe it off? Why did you guys leave it on? I mean, did anybody else even notice? Am I the only person who sees it? No, you're not the only person who sees it, but I'm not sure how to ask Bruce about the spittle. So Bruce, why didn't you run out there and clean up the fucking spittle? Because that was written in. He, that was, <laughs> he was meant to have the spittle. We said, oh, and at the end of the, at the end of the, you got to work up some spittle and have it on there throughout the entire thing. Yeah. Dude, it's just so <laughs> many of those questions, like almost every other one. So hypothetically, let's just try to have fun with this. Uh, you're all, you're probably watching this on in gorilla with Vince, right? No, Vince was doing commentary. I know, but I'm saying you're, you're feeding him lines. Oh, so I'm there with Vince. Okay. Gotcha. I'm saying you're feeding him lines. You're in his headset, right? Okay. Okay. Well, I, what were you doing? Motherfucker in my head? He's wearing a headset. Well, Who's talking to working him? with the truck? I, I tried to stay as far away. I did feed him. Yes, I did feed him some shit, but I hated that. Give me a spittle joke. You got anything? I ain't got no spittle jokes. Conrad, the kind of spittle I deal with is spitting out of a different office. If you will. 
Oh, let's move along. Okay. Um, did, this is from cash. Did Bruce witness Randy Savage chewing razor and Sean out for running over time with their ladder match? Yeah. It's funny that that, that story gets out there because Randy went over, <laughs> you know, it was like retinol went over. Randy went over. Sean and razor went over. Um, and no, I did not. I was at gorilla. If that happened, I wasn't witness to it. So I have no idea if it actually happened or not. Alex wants to know, why did you guys always use that side entrance for pay-per-views, but at WrestleMania 20, you built a set like normal. That's a, you know, that's a good question because we always hated that side entrance. And that was just the traditional entrance at Madison square garden that had always been. So that's what we always used. And then when we started doing Monday night raw with that look with the big screen, you know, finally we changed the look of Madison square garden a little bit. And part of it is the way that the hard cameras are set in the garden, that you're shooting into that empty vom. And if you're going to be shooting into it, at least have it decorated as a set in some way, shape or form. Uh, Jan wants to know, where did you get the ladder for this match? Ladders are us. Thank you. Thank you. Ari wants to know just how drunk was Burt Reynolds during this show? I don't think Bert was drunk. Uh, he had a few cocktails early in the night, but, uh, I don't think he was drunk. I don't, I don't really know, but I don't, yeah, I talked to him right before he went out and he was seemed coherent to me. Were there any other considerations for special guest referees besides Mr. Perfect and Roddy Piper? Well, not really. And the fact that we had, you know, we had Piper and we talked about different things with Piper and then, uh, Kurt came up. So we weren't even going to have guest referees. And then the idea came about, well, these guys are going to be available. What should we do? And it was a last minute deal. That's why we didn't announce them as guest referees ahead of time. So they would be surprises. Um, it just was a, an afterthought more than anything when they became available. Let's, let's put them in. Let's, let's get them involved. Here's a fun one here. Um, this is from Ed given all the detail and planning that had to go into a unique match like razor and Sean's ladder match, being that it was the first one and all of the risk involved, especially on such a big stage like WrestleMania. I'm curious when it comes to the agenting of the match, everyone had to wonder how big was Batista's dick? Come on, Bruce. Uh, I'm going to do my best Oscar. Come on, Bruce. Come on, Bruce. Listen, you're back working with him every Monday. Do you think he could just go find out for us? We could just put this to bed. If you just play ball, I, I don't care, nor will I ever care about the size of anyone's penis, but the fans do. Do you not care? Well, about the you know fans? what? Then they, then they need to, they need to go somewhere else to get that information other than here. Well, because I will never provide that information. Even if I had that information. Well, hang on now. I mean, you've told us before that, um, one member of the broadcast team's nickname was whale rope. So, I mean, what's, what's the big deal? Well, that's because he told me that that oh. was an affectionate name. Okay. Well, you can come up with an affectionate name too. You know, let's move along. Uh, Hulk Hogan at any point. As you guys get closer and closer to the show, 
just knowing the nature of the relationship, does Vince ever say, what if, I mean, for some sort of special celebrity role, some special guest timekeeper, an introduction, a referee, a cameo, anything at all to the best of your recollection? The answer is no. Um, because he wanted it to be Brett's night, but there's a part of me that believes that there's a part of Vince that really wishes that Hulk would have been there for the 10th anniversary and been a part of it. I think everybody does. Yeah. Uh, anonymous listener wants to know, was Cy Sperling considered a celebrity? And when do you think he'll wind up in the WWE hall of fame? Oh God. I hope next year, maybe this year, have they announced a celebrity yet? Um, <laughs> Man, Cy Sperling was on everybody's television every fucking day, damn near every other commercial break. He was a huge celebrity. Huge. Let me ask you this. This has been something that's been talked about a few times, and I just find it so hard to believe. Joel Kidder wants to know Was there a backup plan in case the ladder broke? Yes. What was it? Ladder under the ring. Really? Because it's been written that that was the only ladder. Okay. But they didn't have another one, but you guys did have another one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, just this is from Brandon. what do you think of the black and gold ropes and the gold guardrail? I love the concept of the black and gold ropes. Um, however, I didn't think it looked good on TV. Uh, so, uh, in hindsight, I love the idea when we were talking about it and visualizing it in the beginning. It's cool. It matches the colors of the promotion, but I, I didn't care for it. Uh, lots of questions about, um, well, first of all, I do want to say I love the black and gold ropes. I know we're different on that, but it was the first thing that I commented on when I watched it this week that how much I enjoyed it. Jerome wants to know if, in your opinion, the, uh, wardrobe malfunction with Shawn Michaels was planned or not. What wardrobe malfunction? Uh, Sean had his trunks pulled down while he's climbing the ladder. His bare ass is exposed and he jumps off, does an elbow and keeps it going. A lot of fans think, oh, that was his little tribute to Ric Flair. Others say, nah, they wouldn't have called that. And Vince certainly wouldn't have allowed it. I don't know that anybody knew it ahead of time. That's probably just something happened in the match. They did. Uh, Mr. Williams wants to know, why do you. Like if you had to go back and pinpoint the reason for the buy rate being down from WrestleMania nine, your main event of nine, Bret Hart, Yokozuna, of course, the last match here, the world title match, Bret Hart, Yokozuna. Why do you, what would you attribute that to the, the buys going down? Nobody wanted to watch it. <laughs> That's the reason I just, you're, it was a rebuilding process. Sometimes, you know, we often say you got to take three steps back to take two forward. And we understood that going in, this was a rebuilding time and not everybody was into it at the time. So we had to start a new foundation, build a new foundation. Uh, Mr. Williams also wants to know this is Cornette's first WrestleMania, right? What was he thinking or feeling? Fuck these Yankee motherfuckers. Goddamn. We got to park against goddamn street and the motherfuckers come in. They want to fucking touch you. Don't touch me. Or go through any of my shit. Motherfucker. Uh, seriously. Fuck I, you. I know that Cornette oh. is more of a Southern wrestling type of guy, and this is probably not his cup of tea, but the biggest show, I mean, it is the biggest show. We can't argue that it is a big brand. It's a thing onto itself. It's at Madison square garden. He had to be digging that. I mean, he, he pulled out special ring attire. I, I can't wait to hear what you thought of his, uh, his outfit this night, but 
he had to be excited about this, right? I, I got to believe that Corny was excited about it. Yes. But I'm sure that his frustration with the New York audience and just New York in general, probably outweighed it all. Why the fuck can't they have it in Kentucky? Motherfucker. Louisville gardens be a great place for WrestleMania. What'd you think of the outfit? Motherfucker. I thought it was great. It's typical Cornette. This, you know, Corny used to do the, the super Superdome shows and the big, uh, anything special, you'd always break out. And that's what I love about Jim Cornette. And he dresses the occasion. After this match, do you think this comes to us from uh, Jason? Do you think after this match, uh, Vince started to see Owen as a top guy? Definitely. I mean, we, we built the entire summer around him in the SummerSlam, uh, pay-per-view around it. So yeah. Now, lots of questions about how Luger was to deal with, uh, after this, after this show, because a lot of people assume that he probably, uh, thought this was going his way, especially given the rumors that we've heard over the years, any sort of pushback is see a little more difficult to deal with or business as usual for you guys and legs. Well, it was business as usual, which was kind of indifferent with Lex and yeah, it it really and truly was no different. I think that there was a time that Lex really thought that he was going to be the guy. And when it got taken away at SummerSlam because of, he just didn't connect. I don't know that he went above and beyond to try and and do something different. And it just kind of remained the same for the most part. Let's talk about working two matches. You know, I I think from the outside looking in, you would say working a match and then getting a break and working it again later, you know, maybe that is good. It gives you a chance to sort of catch your breath and, and hit the reset button. But I know some wrestlers would say, well, no, that actually causes you to stiffen up a little bit. Once you're warm and loosened up, it's easier to just keep going. But with a guy like the size of Yokozuna, he probably does need a break. Talk to me about the positioning on the show. As far as the, where the matches were, if anybody needs a breather, shouldn't it have been Yokozuna and Lex Luger to start the show? Well, it wasn't like Lex and Yoko had a match that was as physically exerting as a ladder match or anything like that. So no, um, their, their match was meant to be kept short and not wear Yoko out, but with the shape that Yoko was in, obviously it did. And again, that's hindsight. I mean, that's, that's hindsight being 2020 and not realizing that, okay, well, shit, I don't know. Having him on first or second would have made a difference at that stage of his career, because when he went out for the first match, he was, you know, not in the best of shape and sucking wind. So I don't know that would have made a difference one way or the other at all. Tons of questions about the undertaker, because it does feel a little bit like after you guys murdered him and he went to heaven at Royal rumble that he would come. He was put in a casket and ascended. Okay. That he would have been brought back to avenge his murder at WrestleMania against Yokozuna. And maybe at that point, the world title would be between Brett and Lex Luger. Was that ever discussed? Was there ever any preliminary plan for how the undertaker would come back or what he might do at WrestleMania before he takes the time off? 
No, because the, the whole idea was to bring him back after WrestleMania and put the spotlight on Brett. This was about putting the spotlight on Brett Hart and the new WWE champion. So if you had brought Undertaker back, that spotlight would have been split and would have been shared. So you wait and bring Undertaker back, and the idea was to for Undertaker to avenge Yokozuna later on. Not there. Because that's what people would have wanted to see. They would have wanted to see Undertaker avenge the guy that put him in the casket. And that that takes away from Brett's night. Well, we appreciate you guys checking out WrestleMania 10. This was a fun show. We're about 25 years away from it now. It's always fun to get back and look at the older shows. Uh, We're going to keep the heads going. We're going to bring you another WrestleMania this WrestleMania season. When we cover one of our most requested shows of all time, WrestleMania 17, we've also got some King Kong Bundy, some Michael P.S. Hayes, some Stone Cold Steve Austin from 98 and 99 coming your way. Stay tuned to us right there on social media. If you want to keep up with everything we've got going on, it's at Pritchard show on Twitter or Instagram. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are going to be coming your way the Monday night after WrestleMania. Tickets are on sale right now. You'll have Bruce Pritchard, you'll have JR and myself all on the same stage, probably for the last time, just a few steps from Barclays Center. And tickets are on sale now at brucepritchard.com. And uh, you're going to be heading off to Australia. By the time most of you are listening to this, he's already made stop number one. The tour will continue. I don't know when Bruce will have time to get to Australia again. So snatch those tickets up at brucepritchard.com. And if you're in Chicago tonight, come check out Eric Bischoff, Tony Schiavone, and myself at C2E2. It's the south building of the McCormick Place right there in Chicago. Tickets are only 39 bucks, and they've never done a joint show like this. It's what happened when and 83 weeks together. And tickets are on sale now at 83whw.com. Until next week, he's Bruce Pritchard. I'm Conrad Thompson, and we're out of time. Shaka Khan. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.